Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. Uh, This week we're chatting to Melanie Blake. Her new novel is The Thunder Girls. It's a celebration of working class women. Now, Melanie has done a little bit of everything. Because as well as being a writer, she runs a worldwide talent agency. She's done ghostwriting. And you can hear how she fits all of that into a day and why she has to start her book overseas where she can't be reached also we'll talk about how writing other people's stories has helped her tell her own and what forces the story out in the edit what happens to me is the characters possess me in the edit and what happens is that i will then wake up at four o'clock in the morning i won't go to the gym i'll write for three hours i'll go back to sleep i'll wake up i'll do more work i'll go back to sleep it's exhausting because i write very strong female-led characters and my characters are incredibly diverse multi-layered women they exhaust me but each one of them has a story to tell and my my second book ruthless women which is out next year is possibly the most complicated book that i've ever written and and um and i'm the most proud of it because it's so multi-layered but it it exhausted me it's all on the way with melanie blake in this week's writer's routine Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan, this is Writer's Routine. Hope you've had an amazing week. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for listening, however you are. Uh, This is where we we have a look around at writers to see how they get things done, how they plan their day to plot their story to, fingers crossed, get something published. And we've got a lot of incredible authors on the show, actually, over the next few weeks. Writers from all sorts of genres as well, from psychological thriller uh, to romance to kind of exotic travel novels to, to surrealism. And, and we'll also have another Writer's Routine roundtable for you. Fingers crossed next week. I'll let you know more about that at the end of the show. Also, if you have suggested writers that you want to hear from at writersroutine.com, I've had quite a few of those. I haven't forgotten about them. I promise I am working on it. It's just, you know, quite tough at the moment. (laughs) It's me, really. Me on this show, that's it. It's quite tough trying to juggle all the pieces and and spin the plates to keep them all up in the air. Uh, So that will happen. Just bear with, all right? Good. This week's guest is Melanie Blake. And Melanie has energy. Uh, She has energy which she admits comes from a place of wanting to earn money. 
She grew up poor. Her family was incredibly religious. Because of that, she wasn't really allowed to do much. So when she got the chance to earn money and live a glamorous life, she grabbed it and she worked hard to keep it as well. And now she is one of the UK's most successful entrepreneurs. She's an acting agent. She's a music manager responsible for bringing many 80s bands back to the stage. Uh, She's written a play which is going on a nationwide tour next year. And you know what they say, write what you know. In amongst all of that, she's written a book. It's called The Thunder Girls, all about an 80s girl group who are reuniting, mixed in with a bit of murder in there. We talk about why she has to escape to get the first draft down and also why she's all in it with her work. She gives it her all or nothing at all. You can also hear what she thinks about the words on the page and the way that she's getting her experiences in the industry down on paper and also how ghostwriting has influenced her creativity in more ways than you might imagine. Uh, That's on the way. We get into it as always, though, with what Melanie sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So I can't give you one description because I write everywhere. So I only write from my laptop. And basically, I've I've got computers, I've got everything, I just can't do it. I have to have the laptop, I have to be comfortable. So I tend to write in bed, or I'll write on the sofa, or I'll write in the garden. But I always start my first drafts, always, always, always abroad. Never written a first draft in England. Uh, You are, I don't know, you... You might be interview number like 110 that I've done for this show. Right. I have never had something as exclusive, I'd say, and fancy as having to write abroad. Why is that? Where does that come from? So I think it comes from the fact that I obviously have several jobs and some quite high profile ones, including running a massive talent agency. And therefore, I am always on call. So I've got soap. I I represent a lot of soap stars. I still represent music artists. I represent TV presenters. Now, if I'm in the same time zone as them, they can get me and they can get hold of me. So I have to put a distance between between us or at least an international ringtone. (laughs) (laughs) That means that when they first get that first ring, they go, oh, I'll leave her alone. Now, if I do it here, I never get it done ever, which which skipping around and we will obviously go backwards and forwards. I had abandoned my second book because my life was so hectic and it was only lockdown that allowed me to write it. And I wrote for 16 hours a day. Yes, 16 hours a day for six weeks. And I did 80,000 words and completed my manuscript in solitude because nobody was ringing me. Well, I think we'll come back to the place yes. that you write in just a second, because now you've opened up another door, which I'm curious mm. about. Um, uh, you, you're clearly someone that has quite a lot of, of energy for, for all things, not just creative energy, yeah. but, you know, you've ran through your CV just a little bit. Then you've worked, yeah. as, a, you've worked as a music manager and as an acting yeah. agent. You started this new yeah. reading club. I spoke to uh, Jeffrey Archer, actually, Lord Jeffrey Archer wow. on the show yeah, a, f- a few months ago, and he was uh, really extolling the virtues of, of energy and, and of having this, this, he called it a God-given gift. Where do you think your energy comes from? Where do you think your desire every day to get up and, and to make the most of things, where does that come from? Financial, um, because I was so poor. So unlike uh, Lord Archer, who was fabulous, by the way, um, I was born into basically poverty so we lived on food bank handouts charity shop clothes um i didn't even uh know 
what a piece of broccoli was until I moved to London. I was 17. I thought it was a mini tree. I'd never even seen a vegetable. Um, And when you're that poor, you either want to go one of two ways. You either are content and you sort of stay in your circumstance or you desire a lot and not a little, a lot. And I desired a lot. So I grew up in the 80s and my eyes were cast upon Dynasty Dallas uh, big American imports and I looked at the luxury and I looked at the lifestyles and obviously I read Jackie Collins novels when I was very early nine and I read the pages of these books and went wow there are women out there that are not my mum was a cleaner sadly she's no longer with us but you know she did not want to be a cleaner some people love being cleaners I I don't have a cleaner now but I had a cleaner once who was a brilliant cleaner and she loved it and but my mum didn't want to be one there's a big difference between if you want it or you don't. She didn't want to make do. She didn't want secondhand things, but that was our life. And I knew very early that I wanted, not for want of a better phrase, the high life. I wanted lovely things and no one was going to give them to me because I didn't want to marry money. I didn't want, I was never going to inherit it. Um, so I had to work for it. So I basically from 13, I had five jobs And uh, at 16, I was homeless. At 17, I got the train to London with 1,500 quid from the jobs that I had worked and saved my money and set about trying to crack it in the entertainment industry. And by 19, I succeeded. Do you remember the tipping point, the moment you've got all these dreams and you say when you're about 19, Mm -hmm. things started to happen? Do you remember the moment when like this was all becoming a reality the, the the dreams that you had of the high life of the success do you remember that one i can tell you exactly when it was Please so do. i'd been in i'd been in london for two years i'd arrived in london contactless so i have to go a little bit backwards first at 15 i was desperate to get into the music industry i'd read rockstar by jackie collins and i felt inspired i felt i could i could bring something to the world of music. I don't know why, that's just how I felt. Now, my father was very religious and he banned music in our house. It's a long story, but including Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops was my favourite show. I used to sneak to the neighbour's house to try and watch it and just imagine that I could be with these pop stars and I could tell them what I thought. I'd watch performances and think you could do this better, you could do that better. And anyway, so I arrived in London, uh, sorry, at 15, I basically did my work experience. They said at school, where do you want to do your work experience? I didn't know anything about the music industry. So I decided to do my music, uh, sorry, my work experience at a record shop. It was a famous record shop called King Bee Records in Cholton in Manchester that specialised in rarities and, and all sorts of different things. And I thought that was a fascinating place to learn why people bought records, why they cared, why they were interested in in these people and what would cause them to part with their money. Because obviously I was having a management sort of head on me, even though I was 15. And at the time that I agreed to the placement, I was called by the headmaster to the office at school where I was told that my decision to do work experience in a record shop was an embarrassment to the school and an indication of how little a distance in life I would go and that a shop would be the best that I could hope for. So... With that in mind, I arrive in London. I try and contact every record label, every agency. Didn't get anywhere. Only job I could get was handing out flyers. I was grateful to get it. It meant I could afford to keep my £50 a week room and uh, and hope that one day I would get this break. Nothing happened for two years. I was handing out flyers and drinks and samples. And even worse, I was handing out free drinks at the Brit Awards. To be so close, but to be so far away was even worse. 
still couldn't make any contacts. One day I'm stood at Euston station and I am about two years into to being in London and I'm handing out free drinks on, on the concourse and a commuter passes me by. It was actually a famous woman randomly and knocked the drink over me. I was wearing white and, I, and, it, and it covered me all over. And I looked at her for an apology and she just gave me a withering look and said, you should get a proper job. And at that moment, I was broken. I thought, that's it. I'm going home. I give up. I've done it. I've tried. It hasn't worked. I walked behind the concourse at Euston Station to change my clothes. And the phone rang. And it was the same agency that had been using me to hand out flyers and do hostessing and entertainment work for the last two years. And I was just about to say, you can take me off your register when this voice at the other end of the phone said, have you ever been a camera assistant? And I said, yes. I had no idea what one was. They said, are you free tomorrow? I said, yes. I'd already planned I was leaving, but suddenly I said, yes. They said, can you get to Elstree Studio? And I said, yes. Now, with no more information than that, the next day I got two trains and two buses and arrived at Elstree Studio where I checked in and I was taken down this long corridor towards the studio door and they said, that's where you're working today. And I looked up and there were the words, top of the pops. (laughs) I binge write. That's what I do. So basically, so I'll wake up uh, around to nine or ten and then I'll sort of potter about for a bit and then I'll probably start by midday and then I'll write for eight hours at least. Um, and then basically, if I'm doing a very, very first draft and I'm abroad, um, I will maybe write for 14, 16 hours, five or six days at a time with no breaks. I will literally just go for it. I will eat and I will write. And I won't do anything else. And I won't watch television and I won't read. I won't do anything. Now, that then becomes the first edit. Then when I go back to the edit, edit, I always edit in England. I always edit at home. Always do that. That's my routine. And uh, and then I will basically be more casual with my day. I will take time out. I will watch a couple of programs. I will make phone calls. I will do also, once you become a successful author um, of any level you're also having to do promotion in the middle of your writing so you have to break it up um so i would probably say that um the writing process for me has got two different forms to it one which is like the the birth which is like the really hard bit the really hard delivery of concentration and um solo uh of just being alone solitude and then the second one which is the edit which can be quite sort of social i'll often pop down to a local cafe and spend a couple of hours editing there i'll be talking to people as they're passing by and a lot more relaxed as someone that is 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 successful i want to how have you you know you wake up at nine o'clock that when when you write excuse me that was a little bit surprising to me because you often hear uh you know reports that people wake up at 5 a.m and then they're kind of down at the gym and they're they're doing all this and they're cracking through emails what have you learned about how you work best across everything like what are the what are the the keystones of the way that you work that, that that help you make the most out of things i can't talk for anybody else other than me but what happens to me is the characters possess me in the edit and what happens is that I will then wake up at four o'clock in the morning. I won't go to the gym. I'll write for three hours. I'll go back to sleep. I'll wake up. I'll do more work. I'll go back to sleep. It's exhausting because I write very strong female-led characters. And my characters are incredibly diverse, 
multi-layered women they exhaust me but each one of them has a story to tell and my my second book ruthless women which is out next year is possibly the most complicated book that i've ever written and and um and I'm the most proud of it because it's so multi-layered, but it, it exhausted me. Sometimes I would have to have naps once I've got the story down. I don't know whether it's a trait from my um, from my ghostwriting days. Um, have you ever done any ghostwriting or known any ghostwriters? Uh, I've, I've spoken to one ghostwriter before who kept things quite close to his chest, I think, contractually. Well... What happens as a ghostwriter is you have to, you do, if you're doing an autobiography, I have ghostwritten novels as well, but that's not, that's not an interesting story to tell because really it's just the same, your name is not on it. But when you're doing an autobiography, you have to go and interview someone over a period of X amount of days. I used to do a lot of these and you have to get their life story out of them. Now, bearing in mind that lots of parts of their life stories are not very nice they don't often want to tell you the full story. So, for example, you might say, your husband was cheating on you, you came home that day from the film set, you knew he was in the house, tell me what happened. They would say, got out of the car, walked into the house, confronted him, told him it was over, he left. Now, you can't fill a chapter with that. So, that then is on your dictaphone and you're listening to that, you pause it, suddenly you're in a trance and you're going, as the car pulled up, on the drive as it had done so many times before i knew that i was no longer going to enter what was our happy home as my feet stood on the gravel and every crunch knew i was drawing closer to him and he was inside now she didn't say that (laughs) it's what i had to say and it's what i had to find you then hand that back to them and they go oh you've said it exactly like i said it and you would just want to go crazy and think you never said a word (laughs) of it but that's fine but the point is so so you go you you become like a medium for somebody else's voice, which I can only describe as trans-like. And I think that with my novels, because I write such strong female characters, I write brilliant men too, but the men don't bother me so much as the women. Um, The men I can pick up and put down quite easily, but the women's stories take over my brain and they wake me up and then I just have to write as them. And they just sort of purge their stories through me. They basically possess me until I finished it. You're talking about the voice of of uh, people when you're writing their autobiographies. Just quickly mm. touching on that. Uh, aside from the possession, how much thought are you giving to making one person who you're writing an autobiography for sound not like you, Melanie, and also not like other people that you've written autobiographies for? What are you thinking about that? You don't think you just do it. Like literally, it's like that's how you get the voice. You can either do it or you can't. With a ghost, it's a very special skill. And um, lots of people can't do it. So I used to do lots of it. And then when I became successful myself, I didn't need to do it anymore. And I started having my own name on things. And I had to hire a lot of people to do it. And some did it well and some did it terribly. You just, you can never tell who can do it. It's a skill. It's like, I, I can't, um, I can't click my fingers. I can't do it. You know that thing you do when you click your fingers together to make that noise? I can't do it. It's a simple thing. And someone who can write a brilliant novel on war and peace or could write a brilliant broadsheet or a tabloid story may not be able to be able to do a ghost, right? Because maybe their personality is too strong that they can't hide it. I've got a strong personality, but I'm able to drop it and lose it and completely be someone else. I don't know what that means. I don't know if, 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 if you want to know what that means, really. Maybe, maybe, no. maybe it's one of these things you don't want to lift the curtain. Let me take you back to, to, to the day when you're writing in these, these huge bursts of eight hours at a time. Mm-hmm. At the Sometimes start of, 16 hours. At the start of your day, um, yeah. bit, bit, in terms of plotting and planning, how do you know 
what you will write that day? Have you got a word count in mind? I Have don't. You got, um... I really don't know at all. No, I only know all that in the edit. When I'm in the free stage, when I'm writing freely, I'm just getting it down and getting it out. And it's terrible. I, lit- I don't check for spellings. I don't check for grammar. I literally just splurge it onto the page. And literally, I sometimes I'll write in shorthand. Sometimes I'll write in in practically gobbledygook, and then I'll leave a scene in where it'll be like, in this scene, she comes in, there's a confrontation, and at the point of this, she'll leave, and that was what will set up episode scene scene three. And uh, so, I, so I, I fix all that in the edit. Then when I go into the edit, that's when I do the rewrite. For me, the rewrite is the most important thing because sometimes I can spend four days on two pages. If you're able to to not write a full scene but say you know what mm-hmm. happens there this is what's going to happen i'm going to move on to the next one yeah does that mean you have quite a, a good understanding of the entire story when you first start to write do you know what's going to happen in every scene do you know what's happening at the end well when you've got a publishing deal you have to provide a synopsis for the entire book which is very annoying because basically often those synopsises are twenty to thousand words and that is nearly a half a book so that in itself is a big job, but you can't get a deal without one. So you have to write um, normally the first 30,000 words and the synopsis, which then would be three quarters of that book. So once you've got the synopsis, obviously you have the skeleton of where the book is going to go. So you don't really veer from it. Um, but in the very first book that I ever did, which was a ghost uh, written novel for a very famous celebrity that was a bestseller, but my name is not on it. Um, I never did a synopsis for that. I just wrote it freely. And basically the chapters that I wrote were not to give myself a pat on the back, but were obviously good enough combined with the idea that they knew a celebrity's name was going to be on it that they felt that it was going to make a good story so that was sold on just the words only but nowadays um being with a publisher as i am and as i have been i'm with uh, a new publisher now but last year i was with an international publisher i'm still with an international publisher but i'm with a different one and uh you still have to provide the synopsis but interestingly the second book that i wrote um, I handed over the first 60,000 words and they bought it and they never read the synopsis. So you just never know. I think the, the further you get through your career and the more known you are and the more um, trustable that they know that you can do what you do, they maybe stop asking for so much proof up front. But that doesn't necessarily help you if you need to be someone that is a structured writer. I just freestyle it, I think, and then let the characters take me take me on a journey but I have a very specific um uh set of characters I do a character arc and I knew I know who the characters are and I know what their relationships are to each other and what their goals are for example in the Thunder Girls it was a very clear thing their women had been four best friends that had been the the biggest girl group in the 80s ever the lead singer abandons the group takes the manager with them and ruins their lives by invoking a clause that means they can't perform and then has 30 years of a wonderful life herself until her life is interrupted by a bad marriage where she loses her money and therefore she has to go and seek them out reform the band and get forgiven so that she can save her skin and will they forgive her so so the story was there and you could write that on one page. And I followed that story through 60 chapters, 100,000 words, and never really needed to go back to a skeleton. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll get more with Melanie in just a sec. Before that, uh, if you can, I would love you to support the show. Of course I would. Because support in this instance means money, really. And you might be thinking, well, what's in it for me? Well, I'm here to tell you, hopefully, a lot. At a small scale, you get just the humble knowledge that you're helping us carry on. You're helping us bring you chats with the world's best writers. At a slightly bigger scale, but still don't worry, it's modest, it's affordable. You can get merch from us, bookmarks, badges, that kind of stuff. You can keep in regular contact with the show. And at a bigger scale, you can even have your book sponsor the show. If you've had a book out recently which hasn't quite had the attention that you think it deserves, well, let me shine a light on it for you. I will give it a huge plug. It can take over the podcast, pretty much. Like, you know, some shows out there, uh, they talk for like five minutes, um, endlessly, just boringly, all about a mattress that they've never tried. Well, I can do that for you much better for your book. Uh, And it's a book from our writing community as well. So it's a book that we're much more invested in. It's much better. Uh, To get involved, to support the show, to do that, you need to head to our Patreon page. If you've learned anything in over 110 episodes that has helped the way that you write, please do pledge to support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Melanie Blake talking about her new novel, The Thunder Girls. In this half, we talk about the 80s. I'll be honest, wasn't actually alive in the 80s. But I think we do a good job of kind of making our way. Th- I understand what the 80s were, come on. Big hair, all of that jazz. We talk about the joy of it, the nostalgia of it, and how she's able to capture that spirit and get it down in words. We also talk about editing and crafting the story from the first draft. And we pick things up talking about the new book and where Melanie got that very first idea. Oh, the Thunder Girls was absolutely steeped in what happened to me. So I was a, I became a, when I was working at Top of the Pops, I became a freelance journalist. Again, blagged my way into jobs. Just, just once you get one job, it's able to get another. I had access to pop stars. So I was able to interview them. So I'd literally walk up to a pop star and say, do you mind if I interview you? And then, and give it to a magazine. And they'd say, yes, and you've only got to get one credit and then you're off. 
Anyway, I was commissioned by a newspaper to go on. I don't know how old you are or the oldest readers of the listeners of the podcast, but there's, there used to be a very famous tour called Here and Now, which was where they used to put 80s pop stars together on a, on a tour and they could no longer play arenas themselves. But together, if you put six or seven acts together, they could fill an arena. So you're talking about people like the Human League to to Pow to um, to uh, the Go Go's, any of those. I'm not saying those specific ones, but Culture Club and so on. People whose careers at the time could not do an arena, but together they could do arenas. And they were all on these tour buses together. And I was sent on a tour bus to basically document what life was like on the road for all these 80 stars. And it was horrendous they literally hated each other so much not everybody but a lot of them and it was clear to me that they were only there for the price of the check and then it came to me what if a band is only together for their reunion because they're there for the money and not because they want to be like they were the first time around what would that dynamic like and that's what gave me the inspiration to write the idea of a fictitious girl group that were forced to reunite for the money and what it would cause their friendships to be like if they were no longer friends, but in confined spaces. So then we get to the the, the character and the story arc. You said you need to send off this synopsis to your publishers. That's so you've right. got the, you've got this initial idea of of the girl band that are forced to be together because they need the cash. Yeah. Very simply, then what do you do, Melanie? How how, do, how much how are you brainstorming this thing? How are you unpacking it before you sit there and type out the first word? Well, if you're starting out fresh and you've not got a proven track record at that point, then they will ask for a synopsis of every single chapter. So you will have to break down every chapter. And that is incredibly hard work. But the work then does come back to help you because you can follow that if you need it later. Um, I generally start off with the first, uh, always a pro prologue and normally set in the past. Um, and uh, and then basically pick up. I, I have a, a very, very strange habit, which is I write in anniversaries. So my first book was set around a 30th anniversary. Well, sorry, no, 30 years since they had seen each other. My second book, which is out in February, is a show that has been on air for 30 years and is about to celebrate its anniversary and is on the verge of cancellation. So I, I have some sort of theme that runs through my head to do with reunions, cancellations, saviour, failure and dates. I don't know why, but that's how I seem to work. And then I also write all of my books exactly the same. They're all over a four to six month timeline, very specific. They don't last years. They veer from years in prologues and, and so on. But the actual story starts, say, in June and finishes at Christmas. And again, I think that really helps me because it means I know where I am and I can stay on track. It seems to me, as you say, you can stay on track, that you're doing this to keep things tight, to keep things moving. Yes. How much thought are you giving in, in that very first draft? Uh, how much thought are you giving to the word that is coming next? Are you trying to make it the most perfect word that it could no. be? Or is it just a case no. of getting it No, not first draft. No, the first draft's a mess. Um, and literally, I will just I will just vomit the words out get everything out I can and it won't be pretty and it would be a, it would be an absolute state but I will know what I mean um so then I will go back and then I will do the edit and then I will basically turn it into what it should have looked like the first time round but it's not possible for me because I find it so draining and then the first edit is what really should have been the first draft but it isn't so I have almost like a dummy draft which is what comes out of me first 
How do you possibly start to do that edit, though, when you've got this, as you say, this vomit that's been you know, splurged onto the page? How do you go about yeah. at all trying to make sense of it? That must be quite a daunting task. No, it's not really, because basically it's a bit like having too many ingredients for something. It's very easy to work out where you can chop. It, the problem is if you don't put enough down, it's always easy to edit out. It's very hard to reconjure stuff that you didn't put in so the more you put down the more splattering there is the more cleaning up you can do and then you realize what you have and so my latest book um which is going through the edit at the moment they want an extra 10,000 words of but it was interesting because the 10,000 words that they want were things that I had originally written and thought I'm going to cut these out to make it faster and just shows that I I kind of knew that I should have done it in the first place but but I just thought, well, I'll 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 do it this way, and then if they ask for it, I can put it back in. Um, but less is harder than more. More is easier than less, definitely, because you just can look back at it and go, I don't need this. I don't need this. I often kill characters completely and remove them from from narratives the thunder girls had five characters and a, a sister of one of the main characters and i just erased her completely i was about 10 when it was all going on and that was obviously a really exciting time for me to witness it and uh and i'm able to capture it really just by by watching old youtubes by watching old videos by watching old interviews and just then also remember i was a manager i did work with famous pop stars and massive acts myself and lots of those had been from the 80s so when i reunited the the nolan girl group which i'm sure if you ask uh, any of your older yeah, relatives, i know the know, nolan they'll know who they are i'm just saying that in this was 10 years ago in 2009 everybody said to me oh it'll never work and it took two million at the box office in 24 hours and broke all box office records for a reunion tour for a band that had not performed together in 25 years so and they were very much still in their 80s sort of vibe so i've lived it i've seen it i think that's why my writing is so authentic because i really only write about things that i know i mean i couldn't if you asked me to write a, a book tomorrow about a monastery even if you're a million pounds i couldn't do it <laughs> lastly i mean you know right at the start we went through your cv i guess what why what's the secret to compartmentalizing melanie how are you able to have one part of your brain as a music manager one as an acting agent one as a, one as a writer one as the head of a book club what's going on um well i've got a so it's funny for me because basically i was um so i'm dyslexic so I did terribly at school because in the 80s, they didn't notice that. They just thought you were stupid and they put you at the back of every class. So I was in the back for every class and I was in every bottom set. And so I say that first before I go on to say the next thing that would sound arrogant if I had not have said that. But I'm actually really intelligent. My brain is really clever and it lets me do lots of really wonderful things. And I think because I wasn't... Um, steered towards academia I was sort of left to my own devices to let my brain sort of create lots of things for me my dad banned television he banned music he banned lots of things all the programs and things that I referred to having watched I had to watch them at neighbors houses or or um or relatives because my father was really religious so I was left alone with my imagination and I would say that I probably fertilized my brain early doors so my my brain has tons of capacities i mean i'm a woman women can do many things no offense we can multitask in many ways more than most men ever can and uh, i think my brain just is possibly capable of a lot more because of the fact that it was forced to entertain itself you know i was in an era before the internet before mobile phones before you could pick 
TV on demand. If you take into account that I have television band and popular culture, I spent a lot of time using my brain to entertain myself. And that that is what I would probably consider brain exercise. And in which case, I'm not very fit. I sit around on my bum all day in biscuits. But my brain is probably uh, an Olympian level of being able to go you can do this 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 and then never get swamped and that is it for this week's writer's routine thank you so much for listening thank you to melanie for coming on the show you can grab a copy of her book the thunder girls over on our website writersroutine.com uh, if you are going to buy it please do do it on there we've got a link so we can get a kickback at no extra cost to you, which means everyone wins, really. Uh, Also, while you're there, you can get in touch with the show and let us know what you think. Please do support us over at Patreon as well. You can have your novel sponsoring the show. You can get some merch too. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Now, next week, uh, we've got a similar author to Melanie, really. We'll chat to Mark Grenside. He's been a TV producer, a screenwriter, a music manager, and now he's written a novel. You can hear more about that next friday but before that keep your eyes peeled on your podcast feeds at the start of next week because all being well fingers crossed i am getting round to it uh, you should have another one of our writers routine roundtables to listen to uh, this time we're chatting to uplit authors all about telling feel-good stories they'll be here next week for you to get involved with that subscribe so you don't have to do anything just click subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and that'll be here at the start of next week i will see you then with another writer's routine bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.